this working? Thank you. Your microphone's going to work, Haley, they tell me. So, <laughs> welcome, good morning. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, March 15th, uh, 2017. Beware the Ides of March. I hope everyone Thanks. got home safely last night and, um, and those we're not seeing are because their kids are home for the first two hours of the day and not because there's any travel difficulties. And this is a real treat with our <laughs> staff in the front row supporting their colleague this we're morning. We're united. So, united in support. <laughs> Excellent. So it's a busy month. Um, uh, it's a busy week and a busy month. I'm the slides during the, sort of the uh, commercial, uh, the commercial uh, uh, role about this is actually both National Child Life Specialist Month and National Social Work Celebration Month. So, so uh, not that we don't thank and appreciate our colleagues in social work and child life, but uh, an extra special month to do so. It is Dartmouth Hitchcock Patient Quality and Safety Week with a series of events, but today is a big day and it's a poster fair where I think uh, several members of CHAP are presenting <coughs> between about 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. in auditoriums D, A through D, and the Fuller Boardroom, so make your way through there. We have uh, guests who are not in the room, unfortunately, from uh, Royal Aberdeen Children's Hospital, our exchange partner. Two nurses on an exchange program are joining us this entire week as part of Safety Week, and so you probably have seen them hopefully around the units. Can we culminate Sunday with the Battle of the Badges, the 10th annual, in, in, in support of Chad down at the SNHU uh, Wireless Arena? No, Rise and Rise. The SNHU Arena in Manchester. Tickets are still available for that. So, uh, as always, a lot's going on, including including now welcoming, uh, welcoming Dr. Bacher to the podium. So. Uh, Haley is uh, one of our graduating residents, a native of Ohio. She um, was a summa cum laude graduate of the University of Toledo, as well as receiving her medical doctor degree or doctor of medicine from University of Toledo College of Medicine, Alpha Omega Alpha, uh, in 2014 when she joined us here in the pediatric residency at Chad. Here she has certainly marked herself with leadership roles, taking um, not only participating, but really being a contributor, an important uh, a contributor to our uh, conference committee, our CCC, and our program evaluation committee, and a leadership role with our resident-driven education here. Um, I think continuing a trend, she will be presenting not only something that she has um, researched, but something she has lived today. She has really, since her, even since I think when she joined us, has worked with Steve and others in providing important health education and health connection services to residents <laughs> of So folks who are um, really living the experience that she's gonna talk about this morning. And she will be returning to her native Ohio to an institution I'm familiar with, Akron Children's Hospital, as a hospitalist in Canton, as well as Worcester. Um, it is Worcester rather than Worcester, the way we present it here, um, in the coming summer. So, but before that, we get to hear from Haley this morning. Welcome. You guys all hear me? Okay, mm -hmm. excellent. So my talk this morning is on childhood homelessness and access to care. My interest in this topic started with Doc Nights, my intern year. This is a program that was started by pediatric residents to help provide access to care to the local homeless of the Upper Valley Haven, um, which Keith mentioned, is the local homeless shelter in White River Junction. During my time there, I got to hear the guests. That's what the Haven calls their 
uh, people staying there, um, stories and how they ended up homeless and how they're struggling to raise their children in chaos. And once I started seeing those stories at the Haven, I started seeing them in the patients for which we care. So I wanted to start with a patient experience. My intern year, I had a patient on the pediatric ward who was admitted for a very mild asthma exacerbation. My senior helped me to develop an asthma action plan when I was getting ready to discharge, and I went in to teach the family about the asthma action plan. Um, and Dad was rushing around the room gathering his things. And I asked him, because he seemed to be in a hurry, what was going on, and he said that he wanted to get on the road because they had an hour and a half trip. And being new to the area, I asked where they were from, thinking that it was down by the seacoast or Manchester or up in the White Mountains. And he gave me kind of a funny look and said, we live in West Lebanon, but we have to take the bus, and that takes an hour and a half. So while this family was not homeless, they were living in significant poverty. And a majority of the problems and solutions that we're going to discuss today are not specific to the homeless, but are even more pronounced in this population. So my objectives for today's talk are to define homelessness, discuss who are the homeless, including the epidemiology, prevalence, and some self-identified causes, to discuss some of the associations with poverty, some of these being the effects of being homeless, and some being the reasons that people become homeless, discuss how we create change and where in the system we can work to make a difference, introduce the a Blueprint for Children, which is a guide developed by the AAP to help create health policy focused on children, and then to identify some state and local resources, not only for our patients, but for us as providers as well. So defining homelessness, the National Alliance to End Homelessness in the Department of Health and Human Services define homelessness as no home or permanent place of residence, and it occurs when people are unable or, um, to acquire or maintain affordable housing. This is a very broad definition of homelessness, and some other organizations use a more literal definition, which focuses just on individuals living on the streets or in shelters. Another part of homelessness to understand is chronic homelessness. To be chronically homeless, you have to have a disability and have been homeless for more than a year or have more than four episodes in three years. And this is important because while it's a minority of those who are actually homeless, it represents a majority of the resources dedicated to the homeless. When we think of kids living on the streets, we think of kids literally like this, sleeping on the street. But we have to remember is that those living in tents and sleeping in their cars are also homeless. And this is way more common in our area, which is rural, compared to urban streets where you actually see them living on the street. The other part of homeless that's included in the broad definition is those that are considered marginally housed. And this refers to individuals who are either doubled up or living in cheap motels. So the Shady Lawn, which you, some of you may know in White River Junction, is a cheap motel for about $250 a week. You can get a room. Um, and it's not uncommonly encountered in our families. I actually recently had a mother and her three early adolescent boys move into the Shady Lawn from the Haven um, so that they could live with mom's boyfriend who is not allowed in most subsidized and transitional living shelters because he um, has a history of sexual assault. Marginally housed also includes doubled up or living with friends and relatives. This is actually very common but very hard to assess. 
These families aren't obvious because they're living in a house or an apartment, and only with further questioning can you figure out that this mom is sharing a bedroom or sometimes even a bed with three of her children. This is probably the most commonly missed by providers because once we assess where they're living and they give us a house or apartment, we stop there. And it's important to ask who else is living in the home and if the children have a bed. So moving on to who are the homeless, we'll take a look at how they're counted and what the epidemiology and prevalence is, first in the United States and then moving on to the twin states. So the count is organized by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and it's required to be done every other year on the odd years. So the last count was actually in 2017, but that data is not published yet. Um, and it's done on a single night in January. Most states actually perform the count every year, um, but the national data is only published every other year. And they're completed by continuums of care which are approved nonprofit, state and local governments, instrumentalities of local governments, or public housing agencies. So my experience with this was last year in 2016, I was doing a community PEDS rotation at um, Child Health Services in Manchester, and on, I was there in January, and so for one day, everyone who walked through the doors got an assessment of where they were living, who they were living with, how many people were there, and how long they'd been staying there. And that's how they did the count. And if you think about it, we probably, between two providers, encountered maybe 60 families that day in a practice that has hundreds of families. So we only got a snapshot of what their actual population looks like. The other part of the count is the housing inventory count, which is a point in time inventory of programs within a continuum of care that provide beds dedicated to serve the homeless. There are five different types of shelter programs. Emergency shelters, were, which are homeless shelters, typically operated for specific circumstances, such as natural disasters, extreme weather, or those fleeing social circumstances. Safe havens, which is a type of emergency shelter that's specifically for <coughs> victims of domestic violence. Transitional housing, which is more for the working homeless who are unable to afford their rent, and it helps set them up to transition to permanent housing. Rapid rehousing programs, which are short-term rental assistance to help people attain housing quickly and then remain housed. And then permanent supportive housing, which are housing groups that have supportive services such as substance abuse and mental illness embedded within the housing. When they're doing the point-in-time counts, they count all of these beds, but for the purposes of counting the number of homeless, they only count emergency and transitional housing beds. Rapid rehousing and permanent supportive housing are not included in the homeless count. This is the information from 2015, the um, national count. So there were 564,708 individuals homeless on a single night in January, and only 69% of them were in shelters. The um, U.S. breaks it up into people and families and then sheltered individuals. So you can see that there are 36.5% of that number were in families. And again, as I explained with my experience in Manchester, this is likely very much an underestimate, and the number is actually thought to be more two, two to three times this number. The good news is this is down from 2014 and down even more from 2007, about 13% or 82,000 people. But again, these are just estimates. This is a busy table, but what I want to focus on is our population, those under the age of 18. In 2015, there were 127,000 kids that were homeless. 
13,000 of them were living in unsheltered locations. And then one more number that's not actually up there were 2,300. And that's the number of kids that were unsheltered and without an adult. So they're under 18 and without anybody to care for them. Switching over to looking to the twin states, this is numbers put out by the U.S. Department of um, Housing and Urban Development. New Hampshire had 1,445 people that were homeless in 2015, with 91 unaccompanied youth. And Vermont had 1,523 people, with 101 unaccompanied youth. These are both sheltered and unsheltered. And these numbers seemed really small to me at first, but they have to be considered in relation to the population of the state. So this looks at the overall prevalence in the US and then comparing against New Hampshire and Vermont. So there are 17.7 people per 10,000 that are homeless across the United States. In New Hampshire, we're doing a little bit better at 10.9. And in Vermont, they're doing a little bit worse at 24.3. But again, I have to emphasize that these are all estimates. And for all we know, it could be much worse and we're just missing those individuals. Switching over to New Hampshire, they publish their information every year. So this is 2016. This is a heat map for those who don't know. Um, the darker the color, the higher the prevalence. The actual numbers for the purpose of this talk aren't really important. Um, but what you need to know is that in 2016, there were 1,700 people who were homeless on a single night, and 1,200 of them were counted in shelters. Hillsborough County, which is the dark blue at the bottom, is the uh, urban area of the state, including <laughs> Manchester and Nashua. And it has 10 state-funded homeless shelters. Um, over to on the right of New Hampshire is Carroll County, and they have no state-funded shelters, but yet they documented 10 people staying in shelters on that single night. So they must be privately funded, and it's unclear how much of the privately funded shelters are included in the counts. Um, along the western side of New Hampshire, including Grafton County, we have only one state-funded shelter. This is looking at the number of unsheltered individuals. They only counted 143 in this survey. But again, this is people who've either walked, been encountered at agencies, or agency individuals who've walked the streets and literally looked for people who are sleeping on the street. It's very, so several of the counties list zero unsheltered individuals, but it's very unlikely that the count is ever zero, and it's more likely that we've just missed those individuals. And then lastly, the doubled up in New Hampshire. So again, these are those living with friends or relatives or living in cheap motels. These, like the unsheltered, are very hard to count. And it's also likely that the count for this is never zero as well. It's just one of the hard things to assess. Hillsborough County, having the most population of the state, continues to have the most counted and double up. But as you can see, Sullivan County is the next darker green. Um, and this is more what we typically see in rural areas is the doubled up. New Hampshire also tracks their numbers by looking at the number of individuals who checked into a shelter over the course of their fiscal year. So for them, this ran from July of 2014 to June of 2015. And I know this is busy, but what I want to emphasize is the numbers along the top row have pretty much remained consistent with only maybe a little bit of a decrease in 2015 with 4,300 individuals who are staying in shelters. Of this number of individuals, 1,100, or a quarter of them, had multiple shelter stays at either the same or different shelters in the same year. 
And breaking down that 4,300 4, by children and adults, 18% were children. So we're pretty consistent with the national information of about 20% being children. And then shelters, state-funded shelters in New Hampshire serviced 493 different families over the course of one year. So when people check into a shelter, they're asked to self-identify a reason that they're checking into a shelter. And these are some of the reasons given for New Hampshire. 25% said that they were victims of domestic violence. 24% said they had a mental illness. 15% identified a physical disability. And 10% identified substance and alcohol abuse. Switching over to Vermont, they look at their uh, information very similar to ours. So they had um, 1,102 individuals that were homeless in January of 2016, which they considered a decrease from the previous year. And similar to us, 20% were children. Um, they also have a higher prevalence in the urban areas, which you can see in Chittenden County, which includes the Burlington area. And then they also take a look at the breakdown into subpopulation with either self-identified causes or associations. Um, for them, they specifically state that their domestic violence numbers do not include children, even though children may have um, checked into domestic violence shelters with their parents because domestic violence is defined as um, violence between partners. So while the children may be with them, they are not considered part of domestic violence. They had 29% with a mental illness, 19% with substance abuse, 16% with a dis physical disability, and 5% with a developmental disability. This information is great and very important, but it's all based on adult surveys and adult numbers for why they become homeless. So what about the causes of youth street involvement? One of the biggest issues with resolving homelessness and discovering is discovering and addressing the underlying cause. Um, unaccompanied youth are often labeled as delinquents, but that's not often how they identify themselves. There was a meta-analysis looking at 49 different studies for kids under the age of 24, and they had about 14,000 kids, and about half of those were in developed nations. They compared developed and developing nations. And the information you're seeing here is the self-identified reasons for street involvement of kids in developed nations. And street involvement is defined as homeless or spending the majority of their day working or living on the streets. So kids who are selling drugs or prostituting themselves are included in this. 49 or 48% of them identified family conflict, 30% poverty, 29% abuse, 26% psychosocial health, which includes mental health disorders, and 20% delinquency. There are also some studies that show 40% of street youth identified as LGBT, and this number can reach as high as 50% in some urban centers, such as in New York City. And a lot of attention is being given to the LGBT community who are currently on the streets, given the current political climate. So I want to move on to talking about some associations with poverty. I initially wanted to entitle this section, The Effects of Homelessness or Poverty, but it's very hard to determine cause and effect. And some of the things we're going to talk about may actually contribute to living in poverty. So this is just a few of the things, but kids are at a high risk for substance abuse, sexual exploitation, missed educational opportunities, because school is often interrupted or delayed as they're moving from place to place. They're twice as likely to have a learning disability, to repeat a grade, or to be suspended from school. They have impaired cognitive functioning, which can increase the risk for homelessness, but also present, 
presents a barrier to exiting homelessness. They have poor physical and mental health with increased depression. About half the kids living on the streets have pretty severe anxiety. And in younger kids, this presents as aggression because they can't express their anxiety. Um, they have increased malnutrition and hunger, increased infections, and poor control of chronic diseases, leading to unnecessary hospitalization or emergency department use and poor access to care. So I want to go in depth in a couple of these. Cognitive functioning. A group in 2016 in the UK looked at several studies that um, looked at cognitive functioning of young people, so those aged 15 to 24, who experience homelessness, poverty, or foster care, and they did standardized cognitive functioning tests for these kids. And what they found was that overall, the homeless and impoverished youth generally have a poorer performance across the board, but they are especially impaired in verbal and working memory, and they have a significantly decreased attention. They also found a tendency towards creativity, which they said could be, uh, they postulated that divergent thinking is more adaptive than convergent thinking um, in risky environments such as the streets, which may be beneficial. However, they also noted that with greater creativity is the tendency towards greater impulsivity, and this could be a risk for becoming homeless. What they also found in their survey was that groups that provided services for these youth did not routinely assess their cognitive functioning, so we have no way of knowing what we're trying to teach them and help them with if they're actually understanding. However, they found that when teachers worked with the impaired youth on working memory training, they improved both their working memory and their academic performance. Switching over to inappropriate ED utilization, Another association with poverty is the increase in appropriate ED use. Researchers at the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services and the Department of Health and Human Services call these ambulatory care sensitive conditions, which are conditions for which appropriate primary care would likely prevent hospitalization. These can be acute or chronic illnesses, and just some of the examples that we see in the emergency room are asthma, UTI, uncontrolled diabetes, dehydration, and gastroenteritis, although certainly this is not an exhaustive list. These numbers, which is um, information collected by New Hampshire Medicaid, are not specific to the homeless, but it's easy to understand how someone without stable housing or access to care could utilize the ED inappropriately. So this graph shows the most recent trends in ED utilization for children with these ambulatory care sensitive conditions in New Hampshire who are receiving Medicaid. And it's done on a quarterly basis. And it's done per 1,000 member months. What was interesting to me was that the youngest kids, so the black line, which is ages um, less than 12 months, and the green line, which is one year to two years, had the most utilization of the ED inappropriately. And this is interesting because, in theory, they should be accessing primary care more with more frequent well-child checks, but yet they're more often showing up in the emergency room. So we just looked at how people are not accessing primary care and are instead using the emergency room for primary care preventable diseases. There was a study done by White and Newman in 2015 that looked at the factors that um, in the homeless population that were associated with increased or decreased utilization of care. Some of the factors associated with decreased utilization of care are males, adults less than 41, uh, lower education status, mental illness, competing priorities, and this is probably the biggest one. And this includes things such as finding food, finding shelter, finding clothing, or place to sleep. And it's easy to understand how if those are your priorities, then access to care really becomes much less of a priority. 
Other things that were associated were inability to pay and lack of transportation. <laughs> things that were actually associated with increased utilization were those that were recently homeless because in theory that they had had a stable life and possibly a stable primary care provider. Women, black race, veterans, alcohol and drug abuse was actually associated with an increased utilization because they were accessing services for their substance abuse and therefore were more likely to access primary care services. Those who had insurance, those who were receiving other services, and those who had comorbid conditions. In addition to competing priorities, transportation plays a large role in having stable access to a regular care provider. I want to revisit the asthma patient that we talked about at the beginning, or that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, and walk everyone just how long it takes a family to access care when they're living in poverty. This scenario is actually inspired by a talk that's presented in Bridges Out of Poverty, which is that everything takes five to seven times longer in poverty. For those who don't know, Bridges Out of Poverty is a community support program to help individuals and organizations address and reduce poverty. The pediatrics residents had the privilege of participating in an abbreviated course at our winter retreat, so if you have more questions, you can definitely ask them. Bridges Out of Poverty has trained over 500 individuals in the Upper Valley, including everyone from employers at local businesses, such as Hypertherm, to healthcare providers, to teachers and school support staff. So switching back to our patient case, we're going to talk about a five-year-old with a history of asthma who's got a prolonged cough after he had a recent URI. The family is living at the Haven, but they're originally from Florida and have been here for five months. They have not seen their pediatrician or a pediatrician in over a year, and he has no idea where his albuterol inhaler is. We're going to look at the case from multiple different sort of scenarios, whether they access the care by emergency room, by a pediatrician's office by bus, a pediatrician's office by car, or if they actually have an established care provider. We're going to start by assuming that the family is really distressed by this cough, and so they get a friend to drop them off at the emergency room. From the Haven, this takes 20 minutes. It's a normal day in the emergency room, so it's relatively busy and they have been checked in, but this is de deemed a low acuity issue, so they have a wait time of about three hours. Once they get roomed, the nurse takes their vitals, the provider sees them, decides that he's got a little bit of wheezing and tries an albuterol treatment, which he responds to nicely. The provider goes back and gives him a prescription for albuterol and sends him about on his way. This takes about an hour. We're gonna assume they're really efficient this day. And then, now, because they've been dropped off, they have to wait for somebody to come back and get them, which is going to take them probably about an hour. So this trip to the emergency room for a simple cough took them five hours and 20 minutes. If they were to access a pediatrician for the same complaint from the Haven, they have to take the bus. So this is the advanced transit bus routes in the Upper Valley. The Haven is located here, right on the green bus route, lucky for them. They hop on the green bus and it takes them about 20 minutes to reach the transfer hub. If they forget to tell the green bus driver that they are transferring to the blue bus, then the blue bus may leave without them, and then they have to wait at the transfer hub for 30 minutes for the next bus. Once they finally catch that bus, it takes them 15 minutes to get to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. The buses run about every half an hour from 6 in the morning to 7 at night, and they only run Monday to Friday. No nighttime, no weekends. So for this family, it takes them about an hour to get from the Haven to Dartmouth-Hitchcock on the bus. 
Our check-in team secretaries are very efficient, so it's only about 20 minutes from the time they check in to the time they're headed back to the room. We're gonna give them the exact same treatment course because clinic is running just like the emergency room today, so it's about an hour to see them, give them albuterol, and then send them back out the door. And then they've got an hour bus ride home. So now their trip has taken three hours and 20 minutes to see the pediatrician. We're gonna do the same scenario, but if they had had a car. We said it takes about 20 minutes to get from the Haven to Dartmouth. It's only the 20 minute check-in. Our treatment course has not changed, and their transport home was 20 minutes. Just by having a car, they've decreased the amount of time it takes them to access care by over an hour. And if they had an established care provider, so this family had regular care with a primary care pediatrician, including preventative care, this boy would likely have had an inhaler at home, and the family may know about the nurse triage line, so they'd be able to call our wonderful GAP nurses, talk to them about what's going on, have them recommend trying their albuterol inhaler, and then it would take a 20-minute phone call. So with regular primary care, this cough could have taken 20 minutes or less had they been using their inhaler initially. So again, I just want to emphasize that from five hours and 20 minutes to a 20 minute phone call is a big difference for a family who has to take the bus or has many other priorities going on in their life. So this is all great, but what can we do? How can we make a difference? To address this, we first have to address how and where we can make changes in the healthcare system to improve access to care and the quality of care provided. So moving on to how we create change. First, we have to understand that providing the exact same care to everyone is not going to lead to good results for everyone. This image shows the difference between equality and equity, and it may be hard to read at the bottom, but it says equality does not mean equity. You can see that when everyone gets the same assistance or everyone is having one box to stand on, not everyone gets the goal of reaching the fruit. However, when everyone is given the assistance or the care that they need to reach their goal, so the sort of the vertically challenged getting three boxes, <laughs> they are all able to achieve the same goal of getting the fruit. And our goal is to provide health care to everyone. There's a framework developed by Aday and Anderson in 1981 that's called the Equity of Access Framework, and it's a comprehensive way to assess the factors that contribute to equity of health care. The three key beliefs of the framework are that health care is a human right, health care resources are limited, and health care policy must allocate these resources equitably. The framework is useful for identifying barriers and facilitators to accessing health services by a specific vulnerable population. So this is the framework. It considers inputs which affect access to care and then looks at outputs which are the actual utilization of care and then consumer satisfaction with their care. I wanna go through each box briefly to explain how each step in the path is a place where changes can be made to improve access to care. So health policy is focused on the financial structure of medical systems and how healthcare systems are organized. The entire goal of health policy is to improve access to care. For example, the AAP Blueprint for Children is a guide to producing health policy that improves childhood access to care. But more to come on that in a few minutes. Health delivery systems encompasses the availability of services, such as the number and type of provider, how services are organized, where services are located, and if consumers have continuity of care. <coughs> when healthcare is tailored to the homeless or any high-risk population, with additional services specifically for their circumstance embedded within the practice, access to care is significantly improved. An example would be outreach clinics or mobile dental vans that go to homeless shelters or clinic in, clinics in the same building as benefits offices. 
characteristics of the vulnerable population, examines qualities of the population that are likely to increase or decrease their potential to access care, and includes ideas such as demographics, health-seeking behaviors, insurance status, income, pre-existing conditions, and chronic medical needs. Some of these characters we discussed previously when we talked about factors associated with increased or decreased primary care utilization. Utilization of health services. This is an output of the framework that looks at how the population actually utilizes health care, including the type of visit. Was it an acute visit, a health care maintenance visit, or a follow-up? What type of provider they saw and for what purpose? And did they have follow-up? Continuity of care happens when care is coordinated and integrated with other health services that's needed by the patient. Free clinics are the most often utilized with the best follow-up for providing access to care for the homeless population. And then lastly, there's consumer satisfaction, which is the population's subjective evaluation of their access to care. And what they found is that patients or consumers that identified engaged, respectful, and empathetic providers are the reason that they return for follow-up and have further engaged in medical care. I mentioned at the beginning of the equity of care framework that the goal of health policy is to improve access to care. The Blueprint for Children is the guide produced by the AAP for facilitating creating health policy that's focused on children. The Blueprint for Children was created for the 45th President of the United States, and it outlines a comprehensive vision of how the federal government should develop policy to give children a solid foundation. It itself is not policy, but it makes specific recommendations for each of the relevant federal agencies and departments on how they can make policy to improve care for children. It can either be downloaded on the AAP website, or I believe Kim Gifford has a hard copy if anyone wants to read it. The goals for the Blueprint for Children are to promote healthy children, to support secure families, to build strong communities, and to ensure that the U.S. is a leading nation for children. The specific aim that's to support secure families has many policy suggestions that are related to this talk, including to increase opportunities to lift families out of poverty, including raising minimum wage, offering job training, expanding temporary assistance for needy families, expanding SNAP, and expanding fam family medical leave. To end family homelessness, so helping families out with rent assistance and improving public support such as affordable and safe housing. To improve access to affordable childcare, to improve the child welfare system to prevent abuse and neglect, to strengthen federal nutrition programs, including SNAP, WIC, and school lunches, because when money's being diverted to food, it's being diverted away from other necessities, such as heat and housing, those competing priorities we talked about. And to expand programs for at-risk parents, such as to address familial substance abuse and to identify and mitigate some toxic stress, which we know is detrimental to child health. Lastly, I want to look at some of the state and local resources for both providers and patients to help with housing insecurity and access to care. <laughs> Two-on-One is a United Way-funded program that connects callers to information related to health and human services. It's available in any state, and you can dial it from a landline or cell phone, or you can access, in our twin states, one of these two websites below. The service categories include everything, so things from basic needs, including food and shelter, to contact information for health care, substance abuse, or mental health professionals, to counseling to public assistance, and employment opportunities. So it's a resource not only for our patients, but for us as providers to help our patients. Along that same idea, a pamphlet was put together by the Boyle Community 
pediatrics program in conjunction with Molly's Place, and it's a resource guide designed to be used in conjunction with our healthcare maintenance visits. And the goal is for us to screen for a need and then to find that need on our resource guide and highlight it and then provide this information to families. It has everything from car seats and clothing to food and housing or transportation. And you can find these resource guides both in the GAP clinic and they're actually out where we signed in this morning. Additional programs that are located in New Hampshire and Vermont include the grants for permanent housing. These are an example of that rapid rehousing program we talked about at the beginning of the talk. Housing security guarantee program, which guarantees a security deposit to the landlord and then sets up a payment plan for the tenant where they slowly repay the security deposit to the agency. In 2015, they gave out 579 loans to help people get houses. There's also a homeless housing and access revolving loan fund, which is the logo you see here. Similarly, they give out loans for the first month's rent plus the security deposit, and their loans are specific to people who actually make too much money to receive other governmental assistance. And they gave out 67 loans in 2015. The PATH program, which stands for Projects for Assistance in Transition from Homelessness, and it's actually funded through a grant from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and it's specifically for helping those who are homeless with serious mental illness or a substance abuse problem. There's also the Homeless Outreach Intervention Prevention Program, which is a collaborative project among six community action agencies to help provide aggressive street outreach and intervention to unsheltered individuals. They have a, a way of systematically following up with unsheltered people to ensure that the appropriate services are provided. Specifically located in the Upper Valley is Twin Pines Housing Trust. This is a nonprofit housing developer that produces subsidized housing for low and moderate income families. They're different than the typical landlord because they have the ability to um, counsel families on choices and look at the bigger picture. I actually had the privilege to sit down with Andrew Winter, who's the executive director, and his team to talk about some of the families that they help. <laughs> An example they gave me was a couple of months ago, they had a family that was late on their rent. And rather than giving them an eviction notice, Faye, their service coordinator, went out to meet with the family and ask about the rent. Through that way, she was able to learn that the family had had a blown tire and had to replace a tire on their car so that they could get to work and keep their job. Faye and their financial coordinator that they work with then worked with the family to set up a payment plan and Twin Pines agreed to wait until the family received their income tax in order to get some repayment for their missed rent. This is not something that would typically happen. Their service coordinator is also able to transport families to benefits appointments so that they can keep their benefits and therefore keep their housing. She's also organized food drops at their housing locations for families who don't have transportation and unable to access food pantries. She scheduled meetings with financial planners for other families to help assist with their budgeting. In addition, most of their current units and all of their future units are built on the Advanced Transit bus line to help with transportation issues. They have actually been working with Advanced Transit to try and convince them to add weekend and evening hours so that there's more hours for transportation. At Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we recently developed the Medical Legal Partnership, which is a collaboration with New Hampshire Legal Advice and Referral Center. Um, it also partnered with New Hampshire Legal Assistance and New Hampshire Bar Association's Pro Bono Program. The goal of these types of partnerships are for clinical staff to screen for legal needs that could affect health and then connect the patient or family with appropriate legal services. These programs can assist with eviction and foreclosure, custody, insurance coverage denials, and unmet education needs. 
They can call the number listed here or fill out a form on New Hampshire Legal Aid's website. And these programs are becoming more available with the growing recognition of social and environmental health on physical health. There are currently 292 medical legal programs in 36 different states. Not at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, but in our neighborhood, is the Good Neighbor Health Clinic. This is a nonprofit organization that was started in 1992 and now services over 3,000 residents in the Upper Valley. They provide free medical and dental care to adults age 18 and over who are uninsured or underinsured and can't, don't have the means to pay for basic care. This is not specifically our population because it's over 18, but we have seen a lot of kids who become 18, 19, and then lose their New Hampshire Medicaid and are no longer able to pay for services, and this is a good option for them here in the Upper Valley. The Good Neighbor Health Clinic also offers smoking cessation, diabetes education, vision screening, financial support for eyeglasses and medication assistance, and transportation assistance. They also offer community resource information for those who can need to connect to other resources. A program that's near to my heart is the Upper Valley Haven, which is a nonprofit organization that provides temporary shelter and educational programming for families and individuals. They also provide food and clothing to anyone in need. In 2016, they housed 35 families and provided food for 3,900 households that included 3,600 children. They offer service coordination to help provide aftercare, which is for those individuals who have actually moved away from the shelter into more permanent housing including ongoing support and advocacy. This is not only to help prevent repeat shelter stays, but also to inform the Haven in areas where they can help more. They also run children's programs, including the after-school program for their current and previous residents, who seek to increase confidence and academic achievement, as well as create opportunities for creative exploration and stress reduction. Amy Beaton has worked with these after-school programs to do a monthly series on healthy choices, such as, as well as her dental outreach. And the Haven is the basis of Doc Nights, which is a program that was started by the residents and passed on to me by Dr. Sam McWilliams. And it was initially started as a quarterly dinner for the parents to discuss their concerns about their child, concerns about their child health, but has grown into an every other month program to discuss health, safety, and fostering parent-child relations with not only the parents, but their children as well. We've done everything from talk about sleep routines and vaccines to help examine a knee or to establish a primary care provider and provide them with regular care. The quotes you see here are just a few from the recent surveys we started last year as we changed our program. And the pictures of the children are with their projects that we do when we go there. I believe my favorite quote is, it was really fun and now we're going to have a family fun night once a week. This program is entirely dependent on the residents, so I want to challenge the current intern class to help Sydney to maintain this program and to recruit next year's interns to help as well. In addition to Doc Nights, we started a process for formal Haven parent phone calls. I noticed many of the children during my work there accessing the ED for minor issues. And for years, our amazing gap triage nurses have taken phone calls from the Haven with a consistent ability to document and care for these kids. And the Haven was never able to re reach a provider overnight, which, as we know, is when most kids actually present to the emergency room. Last year, Dr. Chapman and I formalized the phone call process to allow the Haven guests to be able to call 24 hours a day with questions and concerns about their children. We also now are able to document and have appropriate follow-up for these families. 
So in summary, childhood homelessness is a problem both nationally and locally. It's difficult to assess homelessness. Being homeless puts children at risk for many mental and physical health complications. And remember to use your local resources. And if you can't remember what your resources are, just remember 211 because it can connect you to the resources all over the country. Lastly, I just want to say thanks to the Boyle Program and everybody who helped with both this talk and with the work at the Haven. You can see Emma here working with the kids on that project you saw them show earlier. Questions? Jolene's not here. (laughs) (laughs) She got all those out in practice. Um, Haley, I want to thank you. That was a phenomenal talk. I really love how you pulled together both um, kind of the big picture information nationally and across the country and really able to focus it on what we are able to do here locally. We are a small community. Um, and to be able to have that kind of personal connection to our shelter is really important. Um, I had a, just, it flitted through my brain as you were talking about types of shelters. Mm-hmm. In the blizzard that we had yesterday, do we have emergency shelters for families? Do you, any, does anybody know? So the Haven, in addition to actually having their permanent shelter, uses their kitchen area at night as an emergency shelter for inclement weather. And they do it, they operate it all winter long, and then when there are storms. And I was also going to do just a shout out for the residents. Um, Obviously, you guys are doing phenomenal work at the Haven. I will also say that in terms of Grand Rounds presentations, the last time we have heard about homelessness and its impact on children was also a resident talk eight years ago by a former resident. So I think you guys come in with a strong sense of social justice and mission um, to care for children regardless of their circumstance, and I just really applaud you for that. I'm not actually sure that Dartmouth Hitchcock has partnered with anybody in Vermont that I know of. According to our algorithm, we have several in, in New Hampshire, but I don't know about Vermont. <laughs> um, the law school used to do, they, I know they used to have a free clinic, and I don't know if you know Sam would probably. Sam? Casella? Nick Williams. Yeah. So you're talking about Vermont, Vermont Law School. Right. Yeah. That's a great talk. Thank you. Thank you. Um, question on the, well, I guess it applies to many of these assistance programs, whether it's uh, getting into health care or housing. Do you have any follow-up information about the long-term effect? How, how many people, for example, who get the assistance to get into housing stay in that housing, or how many end up becoming homeless again? Yeah, so when I talk to Twin Pines, I believe that their number is around 80% either remain with them or they help transition them to other supportive housing. They do have a pretty high, around 20%, that relapse and become homeless again. That's the only program I know that has or at least that I saw in my research that published their information. I ask because it seems like a lot of the, except for the the things that are straight economic, you know, factories close, people lose their jobs, so many of the other reasons seem to be so difficult that they're not going to go away overnight just because somebody has a home. 
an apartment. Uh, the, the underlying problems <coughs> for which they became homeless are still there. Mm -hmm. are very difficult to deal. Yeah, and twin, when I was talking with Twin Pines, they definitely identified that the biggest problem with people relapsing is mental health and substance abuse. Yeah. Carol Over. Um, thank you for what you do and everybody else involved. This is a really, really important issue. I have a very basic question. If it takes five hours for a homeless family to get to the ER and get to their child, how do we know that they're able to fill the prescriptions to get the medications? Is there, how do you know that your child is going to get that kind of so that's the thing we don't actually know. Um, and one thing that I found out when we did our Bridges Out of Poverty course and talking with Prudence Peace, who was running it, is that if you are on Medicaid or have lived in poverty, you often have to show up to the pharmacy before they'll even start to fill your prescription because they have to verify your address. So something that would take us 10 minutes to drive through CVS will take them over an hour because they won't even start the prescription until they show up. So I don't really have a question, but I, <laughs> I, I really wanted to just applaud you, Haley, for doing a great job with a, what was a really um, wonderful program to begin with and just taking it to a new level. And I'd like to underscore your invitation and challenge to the first year group, um, because I think that um, residents, pediatric residents, um, see the kids that we serve, this community, better than anyone else in the medical center, better than any of the faculty better than any of uh, the rest of us, because you rotate through so many different places and you see slices of what happens in the emergency room and the inpatient side and the outpatient clinic. And then when you get involved in the community, I think you have a sense for what's important and what affects kids and well-being that's a little more accurate, a little more um, uh, acute than any of us do. And you're really in a unique position to see and advocate for kids. And, and make a difference, just as you're giving these great grand rounds, you're amplifying what you're seeing to the rest of us. So thank you, Haley, for doing a wonderful job. Thanks, Dr. Chapman. Thank you, Haley, for your great work. Um, I was wondering if you could talk just for a little, a little bit about um, your own practice and how when you identify a patient who um, is homeless or has been homeless, um, how you uh, approach their care differently um, or what things you may think about or ask about or whatnot. Yeah, so I think that the important thing is actually identifying it because that's where we have the biggest problem. Um, but then it's knowing who your resources are. So for our clinic, it's Maureen. Almost every homeless family or family who has significant need, I'm calling Maureen and saying, how do I like get them services and how do I keep providing access to care and she does a great job of not only getting releases but helping us as residents or as all of pediatricians stay in touch with all of their community resources because that's how we track them back down when we've lost them. So and you're talking about you're talking about thinking about things besides homelessness um, thinking about all of the things that go along other things that go along with poverty and get getting medications and yeah, so for example, that family with that moved out of the Haven to live in the Shady Lawn, um, we had releases for school and the shelter and their DC, I think it was DCYF or DCF, I can't remember, um, worker. And so when the Haven didn't know where they were and their school didn't know where they were, they called Maureen and Maureen was help, able to help with their care manager at the Haven, track them down and get them back into care. 
much for any time anyone talks about something psychosocial, it makes me warms my heart. Um, I guess I just want to say to the residents and to anybody that this is really hard work, and Dr. Levin's question is a good one. That you know what happens to these families, and I, as I tell people all the time, I go to New Hampshire meetings, and I'm the only one at the table. And I go to Vermont meetings, and there are maybe seven case managers around the table, and we still can't fix it. So it's really hard work. And whenever you feel like it's a little too dark, as Kathy told me the other day, you need to take care of yourself. Please be sure to talk to me and let me support your feelings about how hopeless this is, because especially in this particular political climate, it's only getting worse. So, um, but thank you for opening the door on this. Thanks, Maureen. Did the Twin Pines or anyone, did you explore <coughs> the surprising difference in rates of reported homelessness between New Hampshire and Vermont? Um, you know, those of us who are in this region don't see huge differences demographically necessarily, even though there are political differences. And as Maureen points out, there's and this perception that there are better services in Vermont than there are in New Hampshire, but you're talking about 10 versus 24. That, that's a striking difference. So, um, did they just count better in Vermont, or what's the, what's the suspicion? It's definitely possible with their with better supports that they are just have a better, a more accurate count, and we're just missing, especially in the rural areas, missing a lot of the people who are just don't access care and can't be counted. I think people forget, like Neil mentioned, if you're doubling up in someone's house, you're homeless. But we don't assess that well. So a more general point, but I heard a very interesting thing on Freakonomics radio, on NPR <coughs> the other day, it, was, it had to do with medicine, and uh, they were talking about satisfaction uh, surveys, and you, you referred to that as a measure of success. But there's a, a lot that goes into that, so the people who are coming to you, this this example had to do with drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they're coming to you, they want drugs. So if you don't give them drugs, because that's the right medicine, they knock you on the satisfaction side, mm -hmm. which now has something to do with you, can have something to do with your success as, as a physician, or lack thereof, reimbursement. And I guess that could permeated to a lot of areas. So this argument went that satisfaction surveys are not only are not a, a regular, uh, there, there were other studies that showed that high satisfaction surveys had nothing to do with quality of success of the outcome of the medicine mm -hmm. in practice. So just just be careful about that. Yeah, I think it's worth some content. You had a slide about barriers for accessing care, but it didn't say anything about like a fear of being judged as a reason for not coming to care and being homeless. Does that come up at all? It does, and that was the point about the satisfaction, is not um, so much satisfaction with their care, but for reasons that people presented for follow-up. And when they identified empathetic providers, um, they were more likely to return for follow-up. So definitely presents a barrier to care. So as um, as um, <clears throat> as you hopefully 
put up the good fight to maintain health care access given the proposals that are in Congress these days. I think Haley reminds us that access, while necessary, is not nearly sufficient to health. And so um, it's one step beyond. So even if you turn back the tide, there's still more good work to do. And, and um, I think I'll add my thanks. Everyone is thanking <coughs> appropriately. So have a great day. Thank you. Thank you.